You've found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride, thank you so much again for downloading and listening. Don't forget, if you're enjoying the show, you can help us out by leaving us a five-star rating or review on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe there as well. And also, I invite you to join us on Twitter and Facebook. You can follow the show at Diggin' Oak Island. Now, before we talk about this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island, we have lots and lots of emails to catch up with, so let's get to it. Let's start with, actually, comments from social media that were about last week's episode. First, we go to Jeff on Twitter, who wrote me, uh, wow, that was some big news they just casually slipped in there about the Laginas buying Blankenship shares and property. I guess that explains why Dave hasn't been on the show. Well, Jeff, I mean, geez, man, you ain't kidding. They slipped it in. I didn't even notice it on first viewing. I went back and listened to it and saw what you were talking about. Uh, It makes a lot of sense, though. Uh, Dave did say, and I've said this before, because this question, where's Dave, has been all over the place in social media. Dave had said before that he was looking to retire from the search and really from the show. And it's not hard at all to see that Dave was really there and part of all this, really for his father. But now that Dan is gone, it makes all the sense in the world to me that Dave would want to turn the, you know, the Blankenship's interests in the Oak Island um, land and the treasure hunt over to the people he and his father came to trust the most. Um, so makes all the sense in the world to me. Mike on Facebook commented, square ID hole washers are used on square neck carriage bolts and square shafts. Carriage bolt washers feature square holes that allow for a fairly tight fit as opposed to a round hole that would need to be much larger to slip over the corners of the square parts with which they're assembled. Now, Mike is responding here to something I said on last week's episode, uh, last week's podcast, regarding just this little comment that Kelly Barassa made uh, kind of in passing while he was taking a look at this supposed Chinese cash coin under a microscope. Uh, You know, that coin that Gary Drayton found that had the square hole in it. Um, I think it was from episode one, just at the end of episode one. Now, Mr. Barassa, who is the expert here, said there is, and he this is his quote, some equipment that might need that. And I wondered what that equipment might be. Well, Mike has our answer. Now do a quick Google search for carriage bolt washers, and you'll find more than one example of a round coin-sized object with a square hole in it. Mike, as they used to say at NASA, you, my friend, are a steely-eyed missile man. Thank you so much for that. Okay, now let's move on to some emails. Our friend Peter, who always writes such great emails, writes us, I feel as if we're in for a big letdown season. If we're playing up a tar kiln and a Chinese coin, sure, I'm interested in history, including legends and theories, but it's time to see some treasure, any kind. I feel like they're selling shares of DoorDash or Lyft. Don't worry, we will be profitable eventually. Not to be snide, uh, I find the show fascinating, but every week I find myself saying, I bet I could find more gold and jewelry digging through my blocks cans on trash day. <laughs> uh, Peter, that feeling that you described, the one about buying shares in DoorDash or a Lyft, is pretty much the same sentiment expressed on by every treasure hunter to ever step foot on Oak Island since really 1795. Don't worry, we will find something. They all said that confidently. The treasure is here. We're certain of that. And everyone else who has tried just didn't know what they were doing, or maybe they just didn't have the right gear or the latest technology. Ah, but we do. (laughs) We do have the right gear, the latest technology. Just invest a few more bucks. 
and soon we will have it. And this is not just an Oak Island phenomenon, whether it's the folks who have been looking for, uh, you know, things like the Incan treasure of Lima or the Nazi gold in Lake Toplitz or Butch Cassidy's treasure from, you know, all they all start off sure they're going to find it and they usually end up empty handed and also at the same time certain if they could only try one more time, they'd get it. There's a clinical name for this. I'm just not recalling it right now, but you get the point. It's great to hear from you again, Peter. Let's go to Justin in Virginia who writes, Quick question. In past seasons, tar paper has showed up in various shafts around the island. Not knowing much about this, would this have been something produced in a tar kiln such as the supposed one found on Lot 15? What, if any, connections exist between tar paper and tar kilns? Keep up the great work. Well, I'm not an expert, Justin, but what he's referring to here is uh, specifically there was a structure unearthed in Smith's Cove a couple of seasons back, which had tar paper attached to the seaward side of it. Justin, I, I don't think these two things are related. Tar paper, tar paper such as what we see here um, and what we saw there in Smith's Cove is from at least, I think, the earliest, the mid-19th century. While the kind of tar produced by a kiln, like we're seeing here on Lot 15, dates to be quite a bit older than that. They're not contemporary things. Also, these kilns produced a liquid coating uh, and not paper like we would see in Smith's Cove. It's a good question. I uh, hope that answers it for you. I think I'm right about that. Let's go to Jesse who writes, you had to know. <laughs> you mentioned in last week's episode that you hate when they leap to conclusions and you mentioned finding cows and then linking it to the money pit. Well, 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 my friend, they find an ox shoe, and all of a sudden they say they used an ox to move items from the swamp. The moment that had happened, I started laughing and had to email you. Keep up the great work, Jesse. Jesse, I, I know I could have, I probably should have mentioned this, uh, but my cow comment, with all honesty, was entirely coincidental, and it just felt like low-hanging fruit to me, really, to kind of high-step on that one. But yes. The narrator does love his hyperbole. Uh, let's go back to Facebook to Ryan, who asked, sorry if this question had been asked before, but I always wondered why didn't they take one of the big caissons and bore around 10x and remove what Dan Blankenship put in and what and that would give them more room to look into what is at the bottom of 10x. Ryan, it's it's been a few years since they tackled or even focused on 10x. Uh, truth be told, despite Dan's absolute certainty that 10X held the key to all of this, that just doesn't just hasn't been the case for the Laginas, right? I mean, they've tried, and not much has really come out of it. Could they try it again? Maybe, but my experience tells me the show tends to just ignore places and projects that they have deemed unsuccessful. I think if we go back to around 2015 or so, I think that's when diver John Chatter. John Chatterton, hard name to say, went down the 200 feet or so into 10X only to come up with really nothing and to throw a lot of doubt on what was supposed to be down there. Uh, so, you know, with that in mind, we can see why this is, why they just sort of turned the page on 10X a little bit. Was that dive essentially the end of 10X for the Laginas? Well, maybe, but you never know. The history of 10X, what Dan claims to have found down there, is one of the more fascinating tales of the modern Oak Island treasure hunt. So never say never. Now on to our friend Steve, who always sends us some great emails. Today he writes, <clears throat> this is a long one, just a few random thoughts from the first three episodes. They're obviously going to make a big deal out of the alleged Chinese coin. The astute viewer should realize that if this really is a Chinese coin, it is in no way means that the Chinese were on Oak Island. 
no more than a lead cross, meaning that the Templars were there. As an example, I have four Roman coins in my collection. If I lose one in my backyard, beyond me being guilty of being clumsy, it doesn't mean that the ancient Romans were in Ohio. It just means that someone in possession of the coin dropped it. Okay, I need to discuss these one at a time, Steve, because they're, they really are so good and so very different. So you are 100% correct, and I've tried to emphasize this same sentiment on many occasions over the lifespan of this uh, podcast. Also, just because the last thing we heard on the show was that this might be a Chinese coin doesn't mean it is, Okay. So you're right. It doesn't mean that the Chinese coin was dropped by the Chinese in Oak Island. It can mean a lot of things. But there's you need to know more to even be sure that's what it is. Okay. Cast your mind back to the Roman pilum <laughs> that we found here, right? Or even the ancient ring from last year that most likely was just modern costume jewelry. If the team finds out that their expert was wrong... They have never, at least to my knowledge, I have never shown that on an episode of the show. Not only does the presence of a Chinese coin not mean the Chinese were walking around on Oak Island centuries ago, but also until we get good, solid, scientific dating and identification, then it's all just a guess as far as I'm concerned. A good guess by a smart person, but still a guess. For example... Carmen Legg knows what he's talking about, certainly much more than I do. Let's be honest, though. He's just looking at this stuff. There is no science or dating involved. And I mean the kind of dating that we saw done on the lead cross, right? I mentioned that before, and we mentioned that. It doesn't prove the Templars were there. But at least that proved precisely how old it was and where it came from, if nothing else. But keep in mind, it did not prove, <laughs> like we said, that it was any way owned by or related to the Templars. Everyone calls it a Templar cross. I'm guilty of that sometimes. But we don't know if it was ever in the possession of anybody even associated with the Knights Templar. We have no idea. Anyway, Steve continues. Why are they so confident that the feature on Lot 15 is a pine tar kiln? You'll recall that one of the first things they show is Laird Niven handing Dave McGinnis an object. That's slag, says McGinnis. Slag specifically comes from the smelting of ore, not the carbonization of pine wood. Seems odd to me. Okay, let me stop again. We are, like so many times before, just like we said, dependent once again here on the expert opinion of one or two people. And keep in mind, the way in which that opinion is expressed to us on camera, meaning we're not only just at the whims of these experts, but we're also at the whims of how it's communicated to us via the editing process and the producers and the director. Get it? Is it possible that what McGinnis actually said was something along the lines of, I think this is a tar kiln, but maybe not, and everything past the but got edited out? Of course it's possible, but Steve, this is evolving right now, the specific things so, um, right on the show. So let's not jump to conclusions yet. And we're going to get back to this more when we get into the episode review. So hang tight on that. Okay, he continues. Looks like the cofferdam materials were, in fact, headed to the swamp. They're about to spend a lot of money trying to determine what the structure at the southeast end is. I'm going to guess logs. And they'll spend an hour dendro dating them. 
It snuck by pretty quickly, but we heard Clotworthy say, Clotworthy is the narrator, say something to the effect of the Laginas and Craig Tester had bought Dan Blankenship's land. This is lot 23. And if I remember correctly, Dan Blankenship also has had a house on that lot. Another listener had observed that Dave had pretty much disappeared from the show. My wife and I thought that was the last few times he was on the show on camera. He looked like he had lost some weight. Just wondering uh, if he's left the island entirely. Hopefully he's not battling any health issues. Okay. So we talked about the Laginas buying him out, but I'm not sure they bought Dave or Dan's home and the land that the home is on. Do you understand what I mean? Um, I don't think they did. It doesn't mean they didn't buy their interest in the shares of the company or whatever that might be. And they're the land, the extra pieces of land they had. Let me look into it. Um, Like I said many times before, he's expressed an interest in stepping away from the show. I don't. I can't confirm that stuff about thinking he lost weight or anything like that. I, I don't believe I remember thinking that. Let me see what I can dig up on that one. Let's put that one on the back burner for a little bit. He continues, I'm also wondering if anyone else had noticed the odd feature that juts out into the swamp just south of the paved area. It looks like a road or trail runs down through the woods and then onto a little peninsula in the swamp. I've never heard anyone that I can recall address it. But its position between the paved area and their new southeast structure area is interesting. I've posted a photo below. Happy Thanksgiving. Keep up the great work on the podcast, Steve. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. Um, Hope you had a great time. Uh, I'll put that photo that Steve sent me um, onto our Facebook and Twitter pages so you can see exactly what we're talking about. That is what they have been calling and what they have called for quite a while the peninsula, like you said. And in this week's episode, actually, we hear again how this was essentially constructed by Fred Nolan. The road you describe leading to it makes sense because I think it was something Fred built so he could kind of get a better access into the middle of the swamp. Uh, And as we will talk about more later, Fred Nolan did a lot of moving around of earth and bulldozing over here. Uh, It's going to be an issue, but like I said, we'll get into that in just a bit when we get to the show. Again, great, great email, Steve. You always give us so much to think and talk about. Now let's go to Chris, who picks up a bit on one of the subjects Steve presented there. He writes... I'm brand new to the podcast. I've listened to a couple of episodes so far, and I love it. I wanted to get your opinions on the coins found in and around Oak Island. Obviously, in the first episode of Season 8, Gary Drayton finds a coin that will no doubt turn out to be quite old. My concerns with the coin finds over the years, while dated quite old, that doesn't give a clear representation on when the coin was actually dropped or deposited. In the year 2020, it's very easy to walk down the street and find a penny on the ground. Probably won't be very old due to the fact that there is so much abundance of coins being circulated throughout our, throughout the country on a yearly basis. However, a few hundred years ago, coins were not as readily available globally. So the chances are that if you carry coins, the chances of them being older is much more likely because of its rarity and nominal value. So is it possible that people were carrying around coinage that was up to a couple of hundred years old? I'm always excited to see finds like this new coin on the show, but I do think that the production company seems to really key in on some of the dates of items that stretch things to their absolute earliest projected date. I struggle with some of the timelines because everything they seem to find points to 1600s to 1800s, but then they find timber at the end of the slipway dating to 1300 to 1400s, if I remember correctly. I don't think you do there, but we'll get to that in a minute. Uh, As an optimist, I really hope that 1400s is a realistic date, but logically, I'm not sure I can subscribe to that idea yet. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the coins and how their dates actually impact the timeline of people on the island as well as your opinions of the current timeline of items. Okay, 
the timeline is all over the place, leading from the 12th century all the way up, right? Um, I don't think the ones in Smith's Cove are dated. I thought they were dated to the mid-1700s. I'd go back and look at that. Um, but the swamp dates to earlier than that. Some of the things that the uh, swamp doctor has found, it's all over the place here. Um, and one of the things I've been hoping for is that the show kind of focuses a little bit more. Now, Chris, thank you for helping me make my point again. The dating of the coin or a cross or a brooch or whatever it is, is not at all definitive proof of when this thing actually ended up on Oak Island or why or by whom. Especially when you consider how wide these date ranges are, like you said. And yes, you are totally correct when you say the production team only ever focuses on the oldest of those date ranges. It's annoying as hell, but I'm used to it, I guess. Uh, now, a coin offers a bit more of a concrete date to work from, if nothing else. And you are correct. Certainly in centuries past, there were fewer coins in circulation. And they circulated over long periods of time than they do now. And also, they were better cared for by the holder since they were much higher in value uh, to the typical person than coins in our current currency. But from what little I know on the subject, I, I don't think the typical coin would be in use for centuries, at least not as regular cash, but still much longer than nowadays. This is a question, I think, for an archaeologist and one that I can't really answer for you. Um, and believe me, I'm not an archaeologist. Anyway. Let's finish up this week's email with a message from Trent who writes, Hi Dave, I've recently started listening to your podcast and I really enjoy it, it as a companion to the television show. I do have a question about the coffer dam the Laginas installed in Smith's Cove. And please forgive me if this has already been addressed. In short, wouldn't the coffer dam have served to block incoming water through the flood tunnels if they exist? It appears the installation of the dam was done, at least in part, to provide a means of isolating the flood tunnels and determining their location. But I can't recall any discussion about whether the team attempted to pump water out of the drill site boreholes or shafts to see whether the flood tunnels had actually been cut off. Thank you again for your work you put into the podcast. I look forward to hearing from you. Regards, Trent. Trent, thank you. Uh, for lack of a better answer, I have no idea. Plain and simply, no idea. All right, so let's get into this week's episode of The Curse of Oak Island called Alignment. This was a different kind of episode from what we've seen so far this year, almost a little bit of a throwback episode, really. This week, the team brought on a theorist and then pretty much followed up on what that theorist suggested uh, for the rest of the episode. But before we get into that theorist, um, we have a couple of other quick stops to make on the island. Uh, the episode opened at Lot 15 where we have the archaeologists down in the site of this rock formation, this possible pine tar kiln we've mentioned quite a bit. Uh, David McGinnis, the archaeologist, says he is now looking at glacial till, which apparently means he has found the end of the structure and the beginning of the undisturbed ground underneath it. McGinnis says quite definitively, quote-unquote, that's the end of it. Marty then asks if McGinnis still thinks the structure was a pine tar kiln, and he responds emphatically, quote, it's always been a pine tar kiln. He later adds that the site saw, quote, industrial activity where there was extensive burning over a prolonged period of time, end quote. He then mentions he has samples of charcoal, which he can date. So we look forward to that information. And here McGinnis also makes another mention of, the, of this possibly being from the 1500s. Now, 
Last week, he said it was a British structure from the 18th century. So perhaps this is all just a byproduct of the editing here with McInnes's scenes. I don't know. Let's see where this dating goes. It's kind of going to focus us a little bit here and take out the guessing. So, but let's just pause and wonder about what we have here, right? As the show likes to remind us, the archaeological team is working in this site because of a survey map that Fred Nolan made decades ago. Fred marked this area as a potential entrance to a tunnel. It seems likely to me now that Fred was mistaken, or perhaps, oh, I don't know, embellishing his findings a bit. Treasure hunters, and we talk about this a lot, people who produce shows about treasure hunts, have a habit of uh, overstating the finds that they find, the things they find. I think all of us who've been watching this show for eight years can understand what I mean, right? Fred found some stones. They looked possibly like they were placed there by man to him, something man-made. So what's the most exciting thing it could be? Well, on Oak Island, nothing is more exciting than a possible tunnel entrance, right? So that's what he marked on his map. Something that will impress his bosses and hopefully also something that might help to obtain further investment in the project down the road. Makes perfect sense to me. And to be fair to Fred, this is something that's happened dozens of times before on Oak Island. There are also a couple of other interesting little things mentioned here on Lot 15. The first was that Doug Kroll just dropped in how McInnes has been calling this the pit of despair. <laughs> Why is this the pit of despair? I mean, it could be nothing, just a joke. I don't know. But it gave me kind of a pause. Has there been something difficult about this dig that the producers aren't letting us in on? Just seemed like a strange, strange phrase to me. I don't know. Something kind of out of the blue. And also, finally, Rick says in one of those talking head segments that it is time now to move resources away from this project and over to other projects on the island. And I really was confused by this because seconds earlier, Marty kind of points his finger right at McGinnis and says that his work isn't done here on this project. So what exactly did Rick mean by that? What resources are they talking about that they're going to pull away from this project? It's a little strange to me. I'm not sure what to make of it. Let's take a quick stop over at Lot 32, another new location for the team. Uh, Now, the lots on Oak Island are divided and divide the island actually in half. Um, They go in half north to south half, and the lots go from east to west, with Lot 1 through 20 being on the north side of the island, Lot lot 1 being on the furthest west. Uh, (laughs) And then Lots 21 through 32 are on the south side, which is much smaller than the the north side, as you can tell from how many lots there are. Um, Lot 32 is the furthest east on the southern half of the island. Also contains in its northeastern corner, the southwestern corner of the swamp. I hope this is making all sense. I'll hopefully post a photo if you remember. If I remember to do that, that'll better explain this. But you know where I'm going here. Either way, Gary Drayton and Peter Frenetti are metal detecting over here. And they find three old axes, all within a few feet of each other. Now, they all look rather similar to each other. And Laird Niven comes by and describes them as all small forest axes for limbing. Meaning they're not big enough to actually take down a tree. I used to call these hand axes when I you know, worked on stuff like this. Um, Laird also says they don't find a lot of axes. I assume he means while excavating other areas of Nova Scotia. Uh, and that the presence of these three so close to each other is certainly strange. Honestly, I do agree with that. Gary says these axes indicate to him the presence of something like an old campsite. Now, I'm not disputing Gary's opinion here, but wouldn't there be more than just axes to indicate a campsite? Wouldn't there be more stuff found, not not just three similar axes? But still, 
you know, three of these axes all within 20 feet of each other. It is a strange find, if nothing else, right? It is weird. Um, I'm not sure what to make of it, really, but let's see if we get something more to make of it later on. And also, let's mention the Money Pit area, which they didn't actually visit in this episode, but they did talk quite a bit about. Now, in an earlier episode, Rick and Marty and Craig spoke with the guys from Irving Equipment Limited about the possibility, um, you know, sort of possible ways to approach something along the lines of a big dig. Now, one of those ideas that Irving had, which they seem to be really leaning towards, was this idea of a honeycomb approach. We talked about this earlier on. You can go back and listen to the first couple episodes of the season about that. Um, but basically what they're doing is putting down a bunch of these large cans in sort of a honeycomb formation, which they could then can by can examine and then fill it back in as they go. The point being, it might be a much safer, more stable way to really look at a huge portion of the money pit area rather than just opening up a giant crater. But as we've suspected for quite some time here, uh, this is not going to be able to be done this year. With the COVID pandemic uh, obviously presenting serious logistical and timing challenges, it's just going to have to wait another season. Instead, the team is planning what they call a quote-unquote drilling program for this year uh, with the purpose of, as Rick describes it, gathering data for the big dig. So is 2021 the year of the big dig? We shall see. Now, like I said earlier, today's episode was a little bit different than other episodes this year because I'm going to throw back because we have seen many of these over the eight seasons of the show. This episode focused almost entirely on a theorist and the team following up on what that theorist suggests. Today we have two. We've seen this a number of times before, right? I'm thinking of uh, when we were introduced to aerospace engineer Travis Taylor, who had a star map, and then they walked around trying to find the points in the star map for the rest of the episode. Or, or Petter Amundsen, he's that uh, the Bacon wrote Shakespeare guy, and they went looking for his mercy point when he brought that idea to them, right? Now, today we've seen Corey and Maul and Chris Morford, who we've seen before, and they present the team with two possible targets, and then the remainder of the episode shows us the team exploring those possible targets. Now, now Mole and Morford, if you don't remember, are the guys who last year introduced us to the idea that clues to solving the Oak Island mystery could be found hidden within the paintings of French classical painter Nicolas Poussin. Now, as they have continued their research, they've come up with one of those things that really made me sit up and take notice, to say the least. According to what we all saw here, if you follow a line, leading from Nolan's Cross, in the direction Nolan's Cross goes, it will eventually lead you towards the Palace at Versailles and then further onto the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. If true, that is nothing short of an amazing find. Now, three things came to my mind as soon as I saw the graphic the show presented here. First, I just can't believe no one had discovered this before. Out of all the researchers who followed all the lines pointing to and from Oak Island, and there have been so many, we've seen a lot of them on the show, right? How did none of these guys see this? People have been connecting Oak Island to the Holy Land for centuries, and no one ever plotted this out. 
And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying this is somehow diminishes discovery here. All credit goes to Corey and Maul and Chris Morford for finding this. It's just staggering to me that it took until 2020 for someone to look at Google Earth for crying out loud. I mean, geez, why didn't I look? No, I'm kidding. I can barely get podcast software to work, no less stuff, stuff like this. Anyway, kudos, guys. This is a great, great find. The second thing I thought was that the accuracy simply had to be exaggerated by the show. With even just the basic knowledge of pre-18th century navigation and mapping that I have, what I can tell you is no one, and I mean no one, could have made a perfectly accurate line by pointing some humongous boulders in a formation that point from Oak Island across thousands of miles of the Atlantic Ocean straight down the middle of the grounds at Versailles and then again onto the Temple Mount. There is just no way to achieve that kind of accuracy back then. So how much is the show really exaggerating here? I mean, it just has to be overstating the accuracy with this graphic that we saw. So by how much exactly? Now, this idea really stuck in my craw, and I had to reach out to Corey and Maul to ask question, to ask this question of him and get a better idea of how much of a revelation this really is. Because if nothing else, you can tell that this whole scene with them was really chopped up in the editing, and we were left with you know, something that felt like only bullet points for this whole thing. So anyway, here's what Corian responded with. Quote, it, re- it runs from Louis XIV's front door to the west, not the other way around. The producers inverted our research for television. The line runs from the biggest menorah on the earth at the biggest palace on earth of the most powerful man on earth in the, 18- in the 17th century to a place in New France that matches its time frame, historical context, and state of science. Oak Island happens to be within 0.4% of that line and has, like Versailles, a Latin cross that appears to be pointing right back. From 16th to 17th century context, 0.4% deviation over 5,000 kilometers is mind-boggling accuracy. Louis XIV is well known for advancing this type of science through the Royal Academy of Sciences he founded. The tantalizing question is why? To be continued. <laughs> Corian likes to tantalize me with this kind of stuff. Anyway, now the skeptic will point out that 0.4% deviation in such a long line translates really into being miles and miles off the mark. You know, not hundreds of miles, but miles off the mark. But like I said, and like Corian says here too, look at the time frame we're talking about. Put this in its proper historical context. That is incredibly accurate for the time period. It just is. Despite the exactitudes here, the you know the grounds at Versailles, Nolan's Cross do indeed point at one another. There's no denying that. And that is incredible in my mind. It really is. Let me explain better what I feel about this revelation here. I'm a skeptic on most conspiracy type things, cryptozoology, paranormal, all that type of stuff. I'm a skeptic. That's just my nature. Part of me wants to believe in the fantastic though, which is why I'm so interested in all of these things. But more of me tends to debunk them as they go along and look for real world explanations. I don't take the leaps of faith that I see most theorists of any kind take. I mean, watch any episode of Ancient Aliens and you'll see what I mean by leaps of faith, right? But every so often, There are things that I just can't find a way to argue. As another example, I don't believe aliens are visiting the Earth, and I don't believe that the government has a spaceship in a hangar in Area 51 or anything like that. But 
Have you seen the footage released by the Department of Defense from the USS Nimitz back in, I think, 2004? It's hard for me to explain that one. Now, I don't think it means I'm looking at aliens in this footage, but I also can't explain what it really is or write it off. And I can name a lot of things like this, and this is one of them. If this was just a coincidence that Nolan's cross points almost exactly to the Palace of Versailles and the Temple Mount, I mean, that's one heck of a coincidence, guys. Crazy. And the third thing that came to my mind was that this is the best explanation for the existence of the cross that I have yet heard. Nolan's cross is the indicator that Oak Island was the target of this line, as opposed to some other site along some imaginary line leading from Versailles. Now, I'm not sure where I am on the rest of this theory that we saw here, honestly, but let's get to that. Morford and Malt present their findings via video conference to the war room. They talk about everything I just mentioned, and they also digitally overlay a pentagram, three circles, and then a shape of a menorah over an image of the swamp. And this is where this stuff starts to lose me. I don't want to get too far into it here because, like I said, I think we've basically just scratched the surface of this entire theory so far. But you can lay all sorts of geometric shapes over a cross now, can't you? Remember, like I said before, Peter Amundsen uh, was completely convinced that the cross was actually points on this ancient tree of life symbol. The possibilities are endless. But like I said, I don't want to criticize too much here yet due to the lack of information that we have and the fact that these guys really got off to a flying start here with, <laughs> with their theory session. These shapes point the team towards two spots on either side of the swamp where they think the team should go and dig. But before they break up, uh, before they end this meeting and get to digging, Marty asks the great question, the question that I would ask and the question that I always wish somebody asks during these things. Why? Why do this? Now, Mole says he believes the Templars did in fact dig up and recover Solomon's treasure and hid some of it on Oak Island. Now, this certainly sounds like one of those big leaps of faith that I just talked about before, but take my word for it, there is a lot more to this research and why they came up with this opinion. Now, without saying too much, let me just say that Corey and Maul and I uh, could probably do an entire season of podcasts just on his knowledge and research of this subject and relating subjects. So really, I, I know I'm repeating this a lot here, but we need to kind of sit tight and wait to see what the show does and if it fills in some of the blanks here for us. And if the show doesn't fill in the blanks, I promise you, I'm going to harangue Corey and Paul into an interview and I'll fill in the blanks myself. So Steve Guptill pl plots this um, this place where Mole and Marfer, these two places where they tell him where these two guys tell them to look. And Steve then leads them out, uh, Rick and Marty out and first to this west side of the swamp where he'll find a place that Marty says, quote, something has been dug, end quote. It's kind of this swampy ditch with a little hill on one side. And Marty says he feels this adjacent hill is doubtless the spot where the spoils from that hole were placed while it was being dug out. Did someone get here first? That's the question, right? Is this the work of a searcher? It would seem so. Because if it's not a searcher who dug and left the spoils over there, it really is a sloppy depositor, right? So this is most likely a searcher. But who? Fred Nolan, perhaps? Maybe that's something the team will find out in the future, but hold on a second. They bring in the swamp doctor, Ian Spooner, from Acadia University to do a core sample and hopefully to determine just how old this feature really is, when it was dug, you know, that kind of thing. Now, at the end of the show, Spooner comes back on 
And he's here on the island again doing a video call with the Laginas. And I think Craig Tester was on the phone too from, from the Oak Island Interpretive Center to report his findings on this course sample that he took. Spooner says here that the area that they're looking at is 60 feet long. It certainly didn't look that big from the images and 15 feet wide. And he says it is, quote, definitive. It's a disturbed and manipulated site. He later says it is, quote, 100% man-made and also adds, quote, some, someone did some excavating, end quote. Like I said, could this someone have been Fred Nolan? Well, maybe, but Spooner then says the area is, quote, probably three centuries old. So maybe it wasn't Fred Nolan. The scene ends with the swamp doctor expressing his interest to get in there and dig. And remember, what he wants to do by taking this core sample in the bottom, he wants to find out when water got to the top of that, <laughs> the top of that ground, right? So he'll be able to tell when it was dug. And if it's three centuries old, then it certainly wasn't dug by Fred Nolan. Now, uh, the spot on the east side of the swamp, which they also go and look at, is far less interesting. Here they're in an area where Fred Nolan apparently did do a lot of excavating. They mentioned that quite a bit over the time here, um, you know, while he was working on the swamp, which he spent a lot of time focusing on. There's a lot of talk about Fred moving earth and bulldozing, uh, which means that whatever was here, if anything, might be a little harder to detect um, Rick, Marty, Steve Guptill, and Tom Nolan start digging with Tom at the wheel of the excavator here. And But before they can really find anything of interest, uh, one of the hydraulic hoses on the arm of the excavator breaks and brings the entire operation to a halt. It's not going to work without that. As the team packs up and starts leaving the area, we hear that familiar refrain, that's Oak Island for you. Now, despite this small setback, this is still exciting stuff. Remember now, folks, during the Drilling Down preseason show, Marty said the Swamp was the big deal this season for him. It was the place that he felt was the most interesting and where he felt the most was learned. We are just at the beginning of this here. Perhaps this year's Swamp revelation is not all about swamp, the Swamp Doctor's work on that southeastern corner, that wall or whatever it is. Maybe there's more. And maybe it relates to this theory. We'll see. All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Diggin' Oak Island podcast. Please, please, please subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you do enjoy the show, it really helps us if you rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen. It helps to get the word out on us. The little Apple bots kind of get out there and push us out to other listeners. Um, and we're trying to get to the most listeners we possibly can. Uh, for anyone who has done that already, has left us a five-star review, thank you, thank you so much for taking the time to do that. And thank you for the kind words. It's been a bunch, and I really, really do appreciate it. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We're at Digging Oak Island. Give us a like or a follow there, however you do it. It would be very much appreciated. Great way to follow the show and to connect with other listeners and to kind of keep up with what I'm doing. And every once in a while, I post some thoughts on there that don't make it to the show. And if you have any questions or comments that you want to send directly to me, you can do so via email at diggingoakisland at gmail.com. But keep in mind, you send any stuff to me, you post anything, any comment on social media, any direct message, any email, it's free game for me to read here on the air and answer on the air for, with, with the next podcast, unless you tell me otherwise, which I'll be happy to honor if you don't want it read on a show. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island. <laughs>